Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in the United States Armed Forces. On this series, jointly presented by Supply Chain Now and Vets to Industry, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and stories from serving. We talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector, and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good morning, Scott Luton and special guest host Kim Winter with you right here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a wonderful episode teed up with an extraordinary and very inspirational veteran and business leader. Uh, Kim, I'll tell you, this is going to be an awesome episode, won't it? Hey, uh, Scott, Greg, and great to see you again. And uh, yeah, you did right. And my absolute pleasure to have uh, contacted our guest some time ago and enticed him to come and join us and, and tell us his story. It's going to be a bit of a special event today, folks. I couldn't say it better. And I, I do appreciate, as always, your great facilitation. It comes natural for you. Uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that, that you know everybody across the world, all the movers and shakers, just like this gentleman here. But uh, it'll be a, a pleasure and an honor to get through the interview with you here today. So folks, listen in and tuned in. You might be watching, you might be listening. You're not going to want to miss this episode today. A uh, quick programming note before we get started here. Of course, this program is part of our Supply Chain Now family of programming. You can find Veteran Voices wherever you get your podcasts from. Our show is conducted in partnership with a powerful nonprofit doing big things for the veteran community here in the States, Vets to Industry. Uh, vets, the numeral two, and industry.org. Learn more about this, what they're doing uh, to help veterans connect with resources, connect with each other, and find opportunities as well as, as solve problems at vets2industry.org. Okay, with no further ado, Kim, I'm ready to introduce our guest today. You ready? I'm ready to rock. Ready to rock and roll. Here we go. So today we're going to be speaking with a Royal Marines commando and hero to many. Our guest has overcome a devastating injury in 2007 to inspire others to overcome their own obstacles. He's since become internationally acclaimed motivational speaker, a peak performance coach, and the author of the award-winning autobiography, Man Down. And even better yet, this is my favorite part, our guest is relentless when it comes to helping others, raising funds for special projects, nonprofits, just paying it forward, uh, just the heart of a servant leader. So join me in welcoming Mr. Mark Ormrod. Mark, how are we doing? I am great. Thank you for that warm and grand introduction. I appreciate it. Well, it, it, it is a very genuine one. We do admire what you do and and admire your journey and and how it just it gives you more reason to go out there and make a bigger difference and move the needle even more. So I uh, really appreciate that. And we look forward to diving more into that story here today on Veteran Voices. So Kim, where we're going to start with Mark is, is simple. It's where we always start, right? We, we like to kind of share some of Mark's humanity. So one of our favorite questions to ask here is, you know, where'd you grow up, Mark? And, and tell us about uh, some of your childhood. So I grew up in the UK, as you can probably tell by my accent, down in the Southwest in a little city called Plymouth, just down on the coast. I was born in the 80s, raised in the 90s. In fact, they're going to be 38 years old tomorrow. So I had a, I'm sure every generation says this, but I had what I think is the greatest upbringing ever. 
you know, that you didn't go home for, for dinner in the evening until the streetlights came on or your parents screamed your name from the doorstep. <laughs> you were out all the time doing sports and, and building dens and causing mischief with your friends, you know, and, and I had everything that a kid could ever need or ever want growing up. So, you know, Mark, I got to ask you, did, did you get into trouble as a kid a lot or were you really good? No, I, I did, but only only like cheeky, mischievous kind of things. I was never intentionally bad, right? But you know, just just little silly bits and pieces. You know, doing things I shouldn't be doing as a kid, kind of pushing the boundaries and testing out, you know, how far I could push <laughs> grown ups, I guess, um, before they came down on me. But on, honestly, you know, childhood was was brilliant. You know, I, I got a lot of fresh air, got to experience a lot of things. School was, you know, no better, no worse than everyone else's. So you enjoyed being outside a lot as a kid, is that right? Outdoors, well, sports, dens, you name it. Yeah, absolutely. More, more especially when I was younger, you know, around about, I think maybe when I turned 10, I discovered the uh, the Sega games console. Right. So that, that kept me indoors a bit more than it should have. <laughs> was that the Sega Genesis? Uh, it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I wasn't doing that, I was out just trying to be, you know, a young lad, burn off some energy and have some adventures with my friends. I love that. I love that. Well, Ken, that, that's a perfect segue uh, into some of the things we want to know about his military experience, right? Yeah, hey, thanks, Scott. And, uh, and Mark, uh, welcome again And from here in the Middle East. We've spent a little bit of time and... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and a special shout out to all the vets and the current serving personnel joining us today. And, and thank you, everybody, for your service, because uh, especially in these times that we're living in, uh, the, the respect for people keeping us safe uh, can never be under, underestimated. Mm. So kudos to you, mate. Awesome. Um, I mean, special for me, my, my family actually, and Scott, you won't know this, but uh, my one side of my family has got a very long history in the, in the British uh, Royal Navy and Marines, and um, so up into uh, my father's age group. So a little bit special. Hey, mate, uh, really interested in following you on LinkedIn in particular, Mark, over the last, oh, gee whiz, uh, six months, in awe of what you've been up to. Mm. And uh, it's incredible. We want to hear that story today, hear some of the things you've been into. But tell us uh, at the top of the show here, what really inspired you to join the Royal Marines? Because that's no mean feat to get accepted in there. Yeah. So what it was, is where, where I grew up, all of my friends were two or three years older than me. Uh, in fact, one of my friends who, are, who I'm still very close to today turns 40 today. So he was one of the guys I went to school with, grew up with. And it was actually him. He was one of the, the main drivers that when I was coming to the end of my compulsory education and I, you know, 15 and a half years old, just about to take some exams and then decide do I go to college, university, into the real world, you know, make some tough decisions? He was already in the army. Uh, he was serving out in Germany in the tank regiment. And when he came home, he would always, well, it seemed he would always have money in the bank, you know, nice new car, would go out drinking and partying on the weekends. He would tell me all the stories about, you know, the fitness tests that he'd done and the, the time he spent on the ranges shooting and all this kind of stuff. And when I was at that point in my life trying to figure out which fork in the road I wanted to take, 
I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, that sounds really cool. What what he's doing, you know, and I'm I'm a adventurous kind of guy. I'm outdoorsy. I'd, I'd love to do that kind of stuff. And it, and it seemed to me like it would be a very fulfilling career that would enable me to grow as an individual. Okay. Now in Plymouth, where I live, it's a very military city. We've got army, Royal Marines, and Navy all in this little city. But I never knew who the Royal Marines were. I, I just thought, you know, I got all the I got John and a couple of other friends in the army. When you watch a film and you see soldiers, I guess they're all in the army. So, you know, that's if you want to be a soldier and have that kind of life and that kind of career, then you join the army. So he actually took me to the careers office to speak to the army recruiter when he was on leave one time. I came back home with the paperwork because I was under 16. I had to get my parents to to look it over and sign it. Mm. And my dad actually told me that I had an uncle who was a Royal Marine. He had, he had gone in as a Marine, which is our equivalent to a private. And over 22 years, he had rose to the rank of captain and he'd left as a commissioned officer. And he only lived 15 miles up the road. So we got in the car one weekend, we went up to see him. And I remember he lived on like a, like a, a small farm, you know, in this cottage. He had, a, he had a couple of horses, big Alsatian dog and chickens and everything running around. And I just remember this big kind of barn door, which was the front door to his house. And, you know, I walked in there and there was a huge framed citation on the wall with a sword on top of it, with a green beret hanging off the end of it. Wow. And it was, it was like an officer's citation that he got after 22 years of serving. It was an officer's sword that he was issued when he commissioned to captain and the green beret that he'd obviously earned when he passed his basic training. And he sat me down and he talked to me about his career. And he told me about how the Royal Marines were, were different to the army. They were a different kind of soldier and what it was that they did that made them different. He told me about his career and all the things that he had experienced and, and gone through and the kind of things that I could expect to experience. And it just changed my mindset and, and, and my direction. So I went back to the career center after the weekend spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter and you, you gents remember this, uh, VHS cassettes. Oh, yeah. So he took out the, the VHS cassette, he put it in the TV video combination thing. And I just sat there on my jaw on the floor as I saw these guys, you know, they were, they were screaming up to beaches and speedboats and assaulting beaches. They were jumping out of helicopters with parachutes. They were fast roping out of helicopters. They had these big packs on their back and they were yomping up these, huge mountains and so you know just where do i sign yeah exactly and i was like that's what i'm doing mm, so i right. took that paperwork went home got it all signed sent it off went back to school finished the exams and then i got a letter that invited me to do what was called the three-day potential Royal marines course which is an opportunity for you to go and first of all see if that's it's actually what you want to do if it's yeah. the career for you the kind of environment that you want to be in. And secondly, it's a chance for the trained Royal Marines that put you through at three days to see whether you're ready or whether you need to go back home and do a bit of continuation training. On, on that point, uh, I know thereupon very shortly after, uh, you can let us know how long it took. You also joined the commandos, which just sounds like the best of the best. 
Absolutely. I mean, the Royal Marines are commandos. It's it's okay. one and the same. It, I thought that was the next level up. <laughs> so okay. I won't I won't go into this too much because I'll probably get it wrong. But the Royal Marines used to be separate. The Army were the original commandos, and then we integrated it into the the later stages of our training, which is when the Green Beret was involved. But yeah, I, I passed that three days. Uh, went home. I had a training program. Just stuck to it religiously, you know, to the letter. Did everything that they they asked me to do and was required of me, which was pretty difficult because I was only 16 years old at the time to discipline yourself to go out on runs and everything while your friends are partying and seemingly doing stuff that's a lot more fun than what you're doing. But I did it. And then after I turned 17, uh, I got a, a letter and an invitation to go and join and start my basic recruit training in February 2001. So you're in the commandos, Mark, and uh, no doubt you're, um, you're, you're seeing service. So uh, as much as you can tell us, uh, by all means, share with us where you went and what were, the, uh, what were the duties, what were the missions? Yeah, so I'll tell you what was quite unique about my situation was I, I started recruit training in February 2001. Now, the training back then was 30 weeks long, if you made it in one go, if you didn't get injured and, and you passed every test they put in front of you. When you factor in Christmas leave, summer leave, Easter leave, that kind of things, it's, it's nearly a year if you can do it in one hit. And I finished my training. I was very fortunate that I did do it in one hit, but I finished it in October 2001. So it was about four weeks after 9-11. Mm. So I, I remember we, we'd done all the, the hard and technical part of training. We'd done the, the world-famous commando tests. We were kind of doing the ceremonial kind of stuff getting ready for the big fancy passing out parade and me and my troop were in the diner just you know shoveling burgers and chips and junk food down our face when we all saw 9-11 on the news and so we knew that you know very shortly after we'd officially passed out of training we were going to be going and doing what we just spent the last year training to do which for me you know I turned 18 at this point you know, for an 18-year-old who had just been given a green beret and told that he's invincible, is very young, cocky, and brash, it's actually quite exciting. Mm. You know, so we we passed out a training, did a you know a month or two of just floating around, waiting to get drafted to my unit, and then early 2002, I was straight into pre-deployment training to go to Afghanistan on what was then called Operation Jakana. So 18 years old, green beret pre-deployment training, ready to go to war, excited, bit nervous, but ultimately I think I'm ready to go and I'm, I'm keen to test myself, see if I can do what I'm trained to do. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing got scaled back. A load of us didn't end up going. It became more of a, I think, a special forces kind of reconnaissance style thing. So it was a little bit disappointing. Mm. You know, I settled back into unit life, I ended up going to Norway and learning how to to fight and survive in the Arctic and how to ski tactically, not not gracefully. (laughs) That's like a scene out of James Bond, Kim. Uh, As Mark just shared that, that's that is. So you were in the Arctic, and and the temperatures had to be. I mean, how did you adapt to that cold weather? I mean, you get some some good kit, and you're constantly on the move when you're skiing, so you're keeping your body temperature warm. But what I liked about it is. All the training stops when you get to minus 30. But because of because we were in Norway, that time of year we were there, I think you got four hours of daylight and that was it. 
So you spent a lot of time sleeping. You would get this big tent out and there'd be eight of you in this tent and you'd just be eating and, and sleeping. So, and then when they, when they needed you to, they would teach you how to, to fight and survive, you know, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was really cool, wow. you know, because it enabled me to grow as an individual and push myself outside of my comfort zone. Mm. But we did a couple of bits back in the UK and I ended up boxing for the Marines. And then 2003 came and Iraq became a big thing for us. Mm. And so again, I got put on the pre-deployment training, very similar to the training, the pre-deployment training for Afghanistan. The time came around and this time it was full steam ahead. I deployed on something called Operation Telic 1. I turned 19 at this point. And it was the initial push from Kuwait into Iraq where a load of us, well, I wasn't involved in this, but a lot of the guys went and took the palace, the oil fields. I, I was working out of a place called um, um Khazar Naval Base. We went in there, took over that place because I was, uh, my role that I got kind of taken out of the, the brigade and put as force protection for an army medical a field hospital mm-hmm. looking after medics and ambulances and that kind of stuff and they were going to casualties so you know i went and did a rack came back from there it was a little bit if i'm honest disheartened with it all because i didn't fire a single round i had this big idea in my mind of what going to war was going to be like and for me my iraq it, it wasn't that like i said i, I spent a a lot of time protecting ambulances, medics, field hospitals. All my friends were up there kicking down doors in palaces and stuff, doing the fun stuff. And I kind of felt like I was missing out. So I came back from Iraq, just a little bit deflated with it all. But I was only, I think, three years into my career. And, you know, I'd already done the training, got the beret, been to war, been to Norway. You know, I ticked quite a few boxes in a short space of time. But my partner at the time then when I came back uh, fell pregnant with my eldest daughter so I, I had a look at my life and I started reassessing things thinking you know you, you've squeezed quite a lot into that first couple of years five years is the minimum time you have to serve that was approaching when you put your notice in it you have to see out a, a further 12 months anyway so it kind of lined up right where I thought I'm happy with what I've done I'm only 21 22 maybe at this time so I'm young enough to start a new career put my notice in. I'm going to be a father now. We'll, we'll do something different. So I put my notice in to leave. Things didn't turn out how I thought they would. You know, we separated quite soon after. My life spiraled a little bit. I actually ended up retraining in South Africa as a bodyguard. I spent six weeks in Cape Town training out there. Came back home, started working as a nightclub doorman to try and earn some money. I was, I was staying on a friend's sofa at the time because I didn't have anywhere to live. And things just were going downhill. So if, I, if I could interject for a second, uh, Mark, I, I think a lot of folks, uh, I know when I exited active duty, and of course I wasn't a combat veteran, I wasn't <laughs> a commando, I was a lowly dead analyst, but still I struggle with that transition to find, you know, what is next for me? What's 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 the opportunity? What's the career? What's, how do I pay bills? And I think a lot of veterans can relate to that. Uh, you know, we hear about it all the time. So, so you're there between, it sounds like to me, your first service, and you've had a, a relationship that didn't work out and you're dealing with that, you know, mental um, challenge. You're separated from the training and the structure you had in the Royal Marines. So that's not there anymore. So you're, so you're, uh, and you're sleeping at your friend's house. So that, that's a quite a pivotal moment in your journey. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. 
think things were going downhill for me at that point because I, I'm still living in Plymouth. I constantly seeing all of the men that I served with where they would come out, you know, I'm a nightclub dormer and they're out drinking, partying, talking about promotion courses, deployments, exercises, training. And I was in limbo. You know, I, I was trying to be enthusiastic and say, you know, I've, I've done this training. I'm going to be a bodyguard. I'm going to look after celebrities. You know, what I thought bodyguarding was when really I was just getting spat at and abused by drunken nightclub goers and, and feeling worthless, sleeping on a friend's sofa. And it just got to a point where I, I kind of, I guess I crossed the line mentally. I, I remember being sat on the end of my, I was in a bed at this point, I'd upgraded to a bed, sat on the end of this bed at like four o'clock in the morning <laughs> after a long night in this club thinking, what am I doing? You know, I, this, this isn't panning out how I wanted it to. I had lost my identity. I had lost my sense of purpose. You know, I had no pride in myself or, and who I was and what I was doing. So I decided to rejoin the Marines. You know, I'd only been a civilian for about 12 months. There was no need for me to go through that training again, that year-long training. And what year was it when you rejoined, time frame wise What was that? So I left in January 2006, and I signed back up in February 2007. Wow, okay. All so right. it was just over a year by the time I'd done all the paperwork and everything. And because I'd only been out for a year, I had to do a, an annual fitness test, an annual shooting test, like a we call it a weapons handling test to make sure I can handle a weapon safely and effectively. And I don't know if this was a mandatory test or they did it on purpose for, for a bit of fun, but they put me in a CS gas chamber and I had to do all my nuclear biological chemical okay. tests. I think they just did it to make fun of me really, but I don't <laughs> think it was mandatory. But yeah, four weeks after I signed back up, I was in uniform again, ready to pick up my career where I left off. And I, and I, I just felt at home. Mm. I was back around good people who understood me, that spoke my language, that had the same mindset. And it, as bizarre as this may sound, being a, a Royal Marine, I felt safe. I felt safe and protected in that environment. Yep. So let's talk about, so you deployed to Afghanistan, I believe, not too long after you joined back up, right? So Correct. before we, before we talk about your time there in <laughs> Afghanistan and and Christmas Eve 2007, give us uh, give us one or two individuals that you served with that you know you'll be telling your your great grandkids about. Oh man, one in particular is my friend. He's uh, his name's Gerald. Uh, we call him Villa. He supports Aston Villa, the, the football club over here. Just he's just one of those dudes that if you had twenty people setting on you he'd stand back to back with you and go down swinging no, no matter what. Do you know what I mean? Just a crazy guy. Doesn't not a big guy, not a strong guy, not a, a fighter, but just crazy as hell, you know? And you know, that's the guy that you want to, you want to be stood shoulder to shoulder when it's all going down. So he's definitely one of them. Same as Jürgen. Yeah. My friend Jürgen, but this dude was big and he could fight like six foot three, big blonde, muscly guy. And uh, there was just, there was a load of guys, you know, the, the ones, you know, you know, I've got like, like friends now, like, like Ben and Sam, they were physical trainers in the Marines. I know that my life could go to complete chaos. And if I pick the phone up to those guys, they'll get me sorted. You know, those are the kind of bonds that are created. And so that and we could dedicate a whole series, I bet to uh, talking about those relationships and, and uh, your, your comrades in arms and uniform. So let's move to Afghanistan, but I want, I want to make a really important point here. And Kim, I'd love for you to comment. You know, a lot of folks, 
when they're down in the dumps, so to speak, and they're struggling, you know, some folks never come back, right? Never come back the first time. But as our listeners are going to hear, not only did Mark come back the first time, but he's come roaring back a second time. And, and, and Ken, that is, you know, I didn't, I didn't really appreciate that, you know, that first comeback uh, in my prep work. How about you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and, you know, I wasn't aware of that either, Mark. So thanks for sharing that, man. But, you know, it's part of our executive coaching business. I'm dealing with a lot of execs all around the world, men and women, pretty regularly. And inevitably, no matter what you're talking about in business, the personal side comes in. And, and most people have been through some degree of crisis, if not many. In my case, nearly losing my life on about a dozen occasions, which is another <laughs> whole story. But I don't know why, but it just keeps on happening. And um, but a couple of covering from a couple of those myself, my own personal journey, I've hit rock bottom a couple of times uh, in my several decades. So we hear what you're saying. Um, been been to similar places, Mark, and uh, just really appreciate the fact that you're able to bounce back. But you know, let, let's now hear what happened when the, really the biggest. So, you know, happened in your life and uh, and give us a little bit of background about when things really changed for you. Yeah, please. Okay. So, you know, like um, you said just now, Scott, it wasn't long after I rejoined that I deployed. So when I got to my unit, they were already in the early stages of pre-deployment training for Afghanistan mm. on what was now called Operation Herrick. And what, what struck me was that when I started this training, it was different to the, the training of the previous two. It was it was longer for a start. It was more aggressive. It kind of seemed to have more of a a niche down purpose, and I, and it, you just got that feeling that the deployment was going to be very different, especially you know from what I experienced in Iraq. And I think I joined that unit March two thousand seven, and we deployed to Afghanistan on the seventh of September on Operation Herrick 7 for a six-month tour. Now, when I flew out, I initially went into a place called Camp Bastion, which I'm, I'm sure you gents have heard of. Big airfield there, lots of logistics and everything, all the, the support happens from there. But you have to spend a couple of days there just to acclimatize your body. You know, your kit and equipment works different in a desert as it would to a jungle, for example. So you have to prep it and get it all ready. And then, you know, you got a run a few drills and, and training series to make sure that, again, you can operate in that environment, the way the kit's prepped and the way your body's now feeling in, in this heat and this dryness. So we spent about four or five days in Camp Bastion and then myself and a bunch of the, the lads were thrown on the back of a Chinook and we were flown out to a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson, which was in the kind of southern area of, of the Helmand province. Now, our job while we were there was very similar to those that had gone before us and those that were there with us. We, we had an area of operations that we were responsible for. We had to go out into that area on foot. We had to protect the civilians in the villages. We had to disrupt enemy positions. We had to confiscate or destroy weapons caches, gather intelligence, act on intelligence, you know, basically protect our area while also taking the fight to the enemy and looking after the people of Afghanistan. And we did it very well. You know, we've been there about three, maybe three and a half months. We had been on countless numbers of these patrols. 
Mm. We had come into contact with the enemy, you know, all the time, got into to these firefights and never sustained a scratch in a three-month period. Not not a single... In, the only injuries we had, I think, were a couple of guys fell off a wall and hurt their ankles. And uh, I think one might have had diarrhea and vomiting. And that, that was about as, as bad as it got for us. Now, on the early hours of Christmas Eve, myself... And a handful of lads were called up to the headquarters compound. <clears throat> and we were given a brief on what was to be our next foot patrol. Now, prior to this, you know, we had a mission, we had a purpose, we had an objective. We'd go two, three, four, five miles, five, six, seven, eight, nine hours at a time, mm. go out, do what we had to do and come back. The idea of this patrol was that we were going to leave the, the rear entrance of our camp in two sections with eight men in each section. One was going to go north, one was going to go south. We got told to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp, pushing no more than 300 meters from the perimeter wall. Mm. Then these two sections of men would meet at the front entrance of camp. So now the opposite side, where we were going to secure the location, close things down and finish up for the day. So compared to what we'd been doing, this was extremely basic, low-level stuff no no cause for concern we had no intelligence that gave us any cause for concern it's just basically go out in two groups walk around the camp come back in the front door that's it so we got all our kit and equipment ready and we went back up from our compound to the rear entrance to camp and we got ready to leave we got the green light they opened the gate i was second in command of the section i went north the other guys went south and we went out and we did what we were tasked to do about six hours into it now both these sections find themselves on the other side of the camp. So now at the front entrance, ready to close things down and finish up for the day. And the section that I was in happened to find ourselves on this high piece of ground. It's probably the highest piece of ground for about a two mile radius called the North Fort. Slightly underneath our position was Ford Operating Base Robinson. And then some way beneath that, just off to the side of the main dirt road that ran through the area, was the other section we left with early in the day. So because we're on this high feature, we're in a very advantageous position tactically because we can see everything around us. Mm. But it's also a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it is up. So we were given the task of protecting that other group while they went into camp, they would get behind the safety of the perimeter wall, they would protect us, and then we could peel down off this high feature and go back into camp. So we're given our task. The section commander took his half of the section and he started giving them fire positions. And then I took my half of the section and about five meters to my front, there was a like a shallow bowl in the ground. Now, normally what you would do in this situation, if you were going firm on a patrol and you were stopping, is you'd want to take cover, cover from view, cover from fire. Get behind a building, a wall, a tree, a rock, a shrub, wherever you can find, get down low and give the enemy the, the smallest possible opportunity to, to engage you. So I thought, you know, five minutes to our front, there's this little bowl. We're up very high anyway. If we get in this bowl, get on our bellies, you're not going to be able to see us. And it's going to make it very, very difficult if you do see us for you to engage us. So that for me at the time, given our environment, was the best form of protection that I could give myself and, and these lads. So we jumped in the bowl. They all started taking up their fire positions. I, I stood back and observed for a little bit, making sure that 
we were going through our SOPs and procedures, making sure everything was right. Picked a position for myself. When they gave me the thumbs up that they were happy and they'd been through everything they needed to go through, I did a few more checks. And then when I was happy, I started slowly walking over towards a position that I selected for myself. Now, when I got there and I went to get down onto my stomach, as I put my right knee on the floor, I now on a detonated and improvised explosive device. So bear with me. You know, it, it's, it's difficult to interview because it's an experience that, you know, very few people ever have. So if I ask some very stupid questions, I'm going to apologize up front. But at what point, you know, when, when I've, when I've cut myself at, from time to time, right. Initially, mm-hmm. initially it's like, ah, oh, you know, no big deal. And then the, the times I've really cut, it kind of dawns on me that, okay, I've got to, we've got to do something here. At what point did it, did it, strike you that man we've got to you know evacuate you know evacuate i need to get to a facility what was that how that mental process go it, do you know what? it's um so you mentioned the terrain in afghanistan right it's very sandy very dirty very dusty so initially i had no idea what i had done mm. and i thought we, we'd come under attack right there was no pain this huge dust cloud had been created from the explosion so i couldn't see anything okay my adrenaline had spiked and I thought we've been hit with a, because we're up on this high feature, a mortar or a rockets come come close by. We need to find where the enemy are and, and neutralize the threat. Now I couldn't see anything. Mm. So I had to wait until this dust cloud had settled so I could assess the situation and start trying to figure a way to get out of it and make sure that everyone's safe. And it wasn't until that dust cloud settled that I kind of looked down to where my legs should have been and, and saw that it had been completely torn off from the knee down that the realization of, of what I had done hit, mm. you know, and, and I knew quite quickly after I saw that we weren't under attack. I, I was the the idiot that had stood on and detonated the improvised explosive device. Mm. And, you know, I noticed my arm very shortly after that, but the amount of, of blood and, and claret and fluid just pouring out, you know, you, you instantly know, like, this is going to be a miracle if I get out of this, because you could almost feel your life force draining out of you. You get oh, very, gosh. very tired. You feel just extremely exhausted. No pain, bizarrely enough, just like a, a, a really intense pins and needles. Very, very uncomfortable feeling, but not a painful one. And uh, the, the thing that a lot of people struggle to understand is that despite all of that, you feel very relaxed. I don't know why, you know, it's the body's way of dealing with things. The adrenaline's kicked in, you know, the body's natural chemicals to fight, to fight pain have have kicked in, but there's so much going on that you just can't compute it. If that Mm. makes sense. And it's Mm. very surreal, but you know, and I always say this, um, whenever I tell these stories, the professionalism of the guys that I was on the ground with the, the, I hope I can say this, but the balls of, of those guys still now, when I think about it, it, just astounds me like the way they did what they did, because we will we'll drill this right a million times, casualty evacuations, casivax, and someone will always mess it up. Right. But when you've got to do it for real, it's insane how precise people can be. Mm. You know, before we got on a patrol, everyone's got a, a predetermined responsibility in case this happens, one guy will get on the 
radio to call in the evacuation. The guy closest will get on his belly with a bayonet and start trying to mark a clear route for when the medic gets there. There'll be another guy that will be coordinating any loose bodies in a defensive position in case there's a small arm attack, follow-up, and everyone just did it. No one panicked, no one froze, no one got emotional and ran in to try and help me because we're not trained to do that. We're trained to do the opposite. And it was like a well-oiled machine, Mm. you know? And And I never truly, despite what I was looking at, never truly thought that they wouldn't get me out of there. I knew they would. I knew they'd do whatever it took mm. to get me out of there. You know, and it, it was an intense, intense uh, <laughs> period going through that. It, it is tough. To, I really appreciate how you describe it because I think that really helps us. The, you know, the, the 99.999% you know, of, of humanity that has never experienced anything really remotely similar. So I really appreciate that. It's very, it paints a, a stark visual. I want to move into and Kim, I'll pass baton to you. I want to move into that that recovery and and especially that you know that the, those uh, moments you had. And, and Kim, I'll let you take it from here. Sure, sure. Thanks, Scott. Uh, I've got to say, Mark, still got a few times all over, man. So it's, um, thanks so much for sharing that. I know it must be difficult, but you know, from your perspective, where you're at in that situation. Just before I ask you about the recovery phase of it, I mean, the odds of you surviving that must have been in single digits, seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, you lost two legs and an arm. The amount of fluid you must have lost. I mean, what what worth it? Did they ever give you the odds? I, I'll very. I'll tell you the very quick version of this when when the evacuation happened. So the medic got to me quite quickly because of how close we were to the base. We had to put my my foot onto my stomach that was still kind of semi attached on my right leg. Mm. I fell out the back of the vehicle that was evacuating me, and the driver grabbed my femur bone and held me in the vehicle. And when I got to the, the helicopter landing site and the helicopter landed, I died. And when I got in the back of the helicopter, when they tried putting intravenous lines into my veins, they couldn't because they had collapsed because of the blood loss. They put a, like an oxygen mask on me, which should have steamed up to show that I was breathing. And then they felt me for a pulse. I didn't have one. They said, no, this guy's gone. Now, it wasn't until one of the medics saw my eye flutter which to them was a sign my heart was still beating, that they knew I was still alive. And so they tried to perform a a procedure on me, which you you won't believe this. It only got cleared to be used three days prior to this incident. It had never been used on a casualty in the field before. And basically, if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody through their veins, they had developed a new technique where you take a drill, a medical drill, and you drill into the casualties tibia and fibia and you get a line in that way. And that had been proven to work in practice. Big problem being, I had no tibia or fibia because it just been completely destroyed by this IED. So these medics, and, and you've got to bear in mind as well, right? It's never been done before on a human casualty in the field. It's only been practiced in a calm-ish, sterile, clinical training environment. Now we're on the back of a Chinook helicopter that's banking from left to right. It's trying to avoid RPGs and AK-47 far from the ground. There's dust and sand flying everywhere. There's blood everywhere, feet and arms all over the, you know, limbs everywhere. And these guys are just like trying to take all this in and work on me. So amongst all that chaos, they decided that because they didn't have a tibia or a fibula, they would try and drill into my hip bone and get the fluids in that way. Hmm. So they did it once. And it didn't work. They said this, the skin was too loose. So they, they tightened it. They drilled in again. They got 
the drill and the line to bite, they got fluids in. And they said like three minutes later, they were asking me questions and, and I was coherently answering their questions. They, they li- I literally was dead three minutes prior and they had just hoped that this would work. It worked. And then three minutes later, I was talking. I don't remember any of it, but yeah, they said I was talking and they took me back to Camp Bastion where I started my tour. They took me to the field hospital. You know, obviously because it was a traumatic amputation, I was, everything was a mess. So they had to chop both legs and the arm, tidy everything up, bandage it up, minimize the the risk of infection from the sand and the dirt, stabilize me and then fly me home, which they did on Christmas day. I got back about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas day. Hell of a Christmas present. (laughs) I've had better Christmases. Mm. <laughs> Mate, you're a miracle, man. You meant to be here, and, and so glad to have you. you. I mean, you went through that. I'm sure you, you had an enormous recovery period. What was what was the eureka moment that you had really that shaped all the amazing things that you've done ever since? I mean, you've been down before on the end of the bed and um, couch surfing, and then you recovered from that. But this was a much bigger challenge. This was the biggest challenge most people would ever see in their lives. Uh, how did you get that eureka moment to say, you know what, I'm going to fight and I'm going to make things happen? So three and a half weeks after I was injured, and you know, I was brought out of the comas, took off intensive care, taken up to a, a single room where I was to regain my strength and you know, just try and figure out what I was going to do moving forward with my rehab. I got the old classical doctor come in and say, I'm sorry, mate, you're never going to walk again. You know, because I was missing both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. And every joint you lose as an amputee makes your life a hundred times harder. Hmm. Now, he had never, he had been amputating people for over 30 years and had never met anybody who was just missing one leg above the knee that had success using prosthetics. So he had to come in and say, look, you've got both legs missing and your dominant arm. I'm really sorry, but you've got zero chance of being out of a wheelchair which hit me really hard, you know? But about five days after that, some guy came to visit me who was injured in Iraq in 2005, an army guy, and he had lost both his legs above the knee. He walked in my room on prosthetics. He told me about his story. He told me about his injuries and his incident and and what he was doing at that point in his life and how he had gone from the hospital bed where I was to the life that he was living now. I then got a laptop brought in my room you know, he had both his arms, which makes things, you know, missing your dominant arm makes things a lot harder. But then I got a laptop brought in my room and I started Googling for somebody with injuries more similar to mine. And I found a guy in, in America who was just out there dominating life, lived independent of a wheelchair, could drive a car, traveled the world in his own, was a motivational speaker, you know, doing all this stuff that I thought, you know, I didn't think I knew that, that I wanted to be doing. But yeah had zero idea how I was going to achieve it because I was the UK's first triple amputee. But that for me was the moment where the light bulb went off and I thought, well, I understand what this doctor's saying, but he may not have met this guy that I've just met on the internet and and seen what he's doing. You know, he's an expert, no doubt, but he doesn't know everything. And I'm, I'm seeing with my own eyes that I've met a guy who's coming in my room, missing both his legs. I see a guy with three limbs missing on the internet doing X, Y, and Z. If they can do it, why can't I do it? And and that was my eureka moment. I was like, okay, cool. This is, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to, we're going to 
copy what these guys did. We're going to model their rehab and we're going to get our life back. I, su I suppose nobody can really imagine what you went through, mate. But you, you went through what you needed to get through the barriers. You had the, the inspiration to go on and do incredible things. I mean, talk to us a little bit about some of those projects moving fast forward, if you like. I don't mean to diminish the time that you must have spent struggling and I know you must have gone down and come back up again so many times. But tell us some about some of the things you've been doing because your your inspiration to others is incredible. I've been following you for a long time, as I say, and you're just doing so many things to improve the lives of others, not just amputees and people who have been down and, and injured and, and vets, but so many people in every walk of life. Tell us about some of those big projects because, you know, these things need to be heard. Yeah, I mean, there's, God, there's so many to list. I don't want to, to rattle on too much, but... <laughs> i tell you what, here's a good example of how you can find the good in the bad. Okay, so I lost my right arm. In the evenings in rehab, all the guys would be on the Playstations and the Xboxes, but I couldn't do it. Mm. So I took the opportunity to hire a ghostwriter and write my first book. You know, I spent my evening in rehab dictating my stories to this guy who would then type them up and we wrote a book. You know, I'm hopefully just about to finish book number two over 10 years later. But that's an exciting project. Well, hey, um, and Mark, just really quick, that is Man, man Down, the, correct. the one you wrote while you're yeah. still in the hospital recovering. Wow. Yeah, yeah, which was fun. You know, something I, I thought I'd never get to do in my life. And, you know, things got a plan. I got four or five books in me to, to carry on writing. So we'll see how that goes. But I spent 10 years after I was discharged in 2010 working for the Royal Marines charity, raising money for them to help members of the Royal Marines family, uh, injured, wounded, sick, you know, if any of the challenges that they had. I made a documentary. Uh, I'm looking at making a couple more of those as we go forward. I was fortunate enough to compete in the Invictus Games uh, in 2017 and 18 in Canada and Australia, winning a bunch of medals and got loads and loads and loads of, other, of little projects, you know, over the years in between, but the biggest one which is about to pick up again now that hopefully COVID is is tailing off, is turning this story into a movie. Um, we were supposed to start February, literally, I think we were supposed to start two weeks before COVID was actually announced, February last year. And now finally we're getting around to, to being able to get into the studio and start filming. So that's going to be my next big focus. Yeah, and you do a lot of speaking, Mark. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. What are the sort of groups that you speak to? Because sure as hell, you don't need to know much about your story to be inspired by it. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that I never thought I'd get to do. But um, I got asked to share my story about 11 years ago at a, a military charity event. Very unpracticed, unrehearsed and raw. And it, it kind of resonated with people. So I, I polished it up a little bit, got an agent, and that's taken me around the world now, either at you know one end is corporates, you know, big thousand plus auditoriums full of people. And the other end is is schools, you know, where you go and you speak to school children. Some of the schools I've spoken at have, have got six kids in them. That's it. They're not mainstream schools. Um, so, yeah, sharing my story, lessons, you know, I don't want to say advice, but any, any, any wisdom I can impart on people that are going through tough times and try and help them flip their mindset a little bit and then look at things differently. 
Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, so many people don't really know that they're alive and don't really live a meaningful life as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's so, uh, it's such a good story to resonate, to, to, to give people hope and uh, give them some inspiration. I, at the top of the show, off pre-show, you were talking about a big project that you had offshore coming up in the next few weeks. And I just wanted to put a, a bit of a, a shout out here. It sounds like you're saying that that, that project, because of the environment we're living in at the moment, has just been uh, curtailed or cancelled or postponed. And so all of a sudden you find yourself for the first time in quite a time with about a six to eight week gap. So um, what I'm just going to say is if, if anybody's interested in, in getting an inspirational speaker or have a chat to you, I'm sure you're going to be happy in talking to people and filling in that gap. Uh, yeah, I was just I was supposed to film a TV show out mm. in, in South Korea. But, you know, like you said, that's not going ahead now. But the universe, if you want to call it that, will always find a way to fill that gap. And coincidentally, my children last week broke up for summer from school. So I've got six weeks with them. So we're going to have some fun, go on some adventures and uh, use that time wisely. I love that. And I, I want to echo what Kim shared to any of our listeners. You know, what a wonderful opportunity for Mark to come speak to your team because I tell you, what he's gone through makes any other challenge you have in life, in business, you name it, pale in comparison. And that, that, that doesn't even do it justice. What's so, what's so interesting, Kim, is you know, when I stopped the interview, as, as, as Mark was talking about, kind of before he went back into the more Royal, Royal Marines and, and you know, he was a, he was, um, uh, a doorman at a bar and he was sleeping on his, his friend's couch. And we were talking about how that's a, a tough time, man, Mark, you raised Annie a hundred, a thousand fold and to come roaring back like you have now and have so much to give. I mean, so much to give it, it's, it's nothing short and coming back from death, frankly, mm-hmm. as you laid out, uh, it is nothing short of amazing. All right. So folks, make sure you connect with Mark. We're going to have his, his contact information in the show notes, make it really easy. If for some reason, the link doesn't work or, or, or you have any other kind of issue, reach out to us. You can reach out to Amanda at supplychainnow.com or you can certainly reach out to Kim and his group and we'll make sure we let you know how to do that here before we wrap. All right, so there's, there's folks listening to this interview, undoubtedly, Mark, and whether they're veterans, whether they're business leaders, whether they're folks out of work, they're dealing with the setbacks that come at us all in life. Uh, not not many at, at, at what you've gone through, of course, but what would be what would be beyond what you shared already? What would be your message to that one person that was meant to hear it? What would that be? I always like to tell people it's very much about your mindset. I think once you change your mindset, you change your life. And I always say that there's opportunity in adversity, and that is why I've been fortunate enough to do all, all the things that I've done over my life. But I think a lot of us are preconditioned that when we face adversity, we just default to, to the negative. You know, why me? This isn't fair. You know, I hate my life. But and same as in business, you can't against a challenge in business. You don't get the contract you wanted or your employee leaves or whatever it is. Sometimes you just step back and you take that helicopter view, you know, and just take a breath, look down and go, okay, what's good about this? Where are my opportunities in here? Do you know what I mean? Like, like I say, your employee leaves your business. You weren't expecting it. Okay, that sucks. They're really good. What's the opportunity? Right. I get to fill that role now with somebody who could potentially be better. Or did that role need to exist in the first place? Can I automate that role? Can right. I outsource it? To you know, you just got to take a breath, you know, chill, 
take the helicopter view right. and just look for the good and the bad. Uh, so I hear that. I hear some of what you're implying or speaking to is you kind of peel off the emotional side of the setback so you can look at it really practically. And, mm-hmm. and Ken, the other thing in, in a couple of conversations that we've had with Mark and, and, and some of the moments in this interview, it seems like to me that Mark keeps a pretty healthy sense of humor and a sense of perspective. Is that what you, Kim? Sure as hell. I mean, you know, you could almost be an Australian or a New Zealander, mate. But uh, <laughs> you certainly know how to take the uh, take the the fun into things. And uh, look, I, I'm just staggered. I mean, I knew we were doing this today, and I didn't really get myself emotionally prepared for it. But uh, <laughs> you really got you really got me going. I mean, the, the amount that you do for other people, and I, and I hear what you're saying, and it's, there's no better. There's no better way to try and forget about yourself and your own problems than by giving to others. And I, mm-hmm. I think we all share that and that resonates with a lot of people. But mate, a terrible amount of respect for you for what you're doing. I'm really looking forward to meeting you when I get to the UK once we get this COVID stuff under control. A lot of good friends of mine up there, but mate, I'll be coming to Plymouth and Sir Francis Drake and, uh, and, <laughs> and James Cook may have left Plymouth and done amazing things but i'll tell you what uh you know mark ormond is is right up there with the heroes that i've that i've uh, considered in life that's for sure so really uh, really appreciate you joining us here today man sharing thank story. you mate thank you appreciate it i couldn't say anything better than what kim just shared i, I completely echo that wholeheartedly uh mark what a, uh, i know an hour never does this never does this justice but today it certainly doesn't do this any remote uh justice so really appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate how your, what your mindset is like as you share that story, right? You're a great storyteller, by the way. It has so much clarity and you almost can walk right with you as you go through your journey. And that's the sign of a great, unique storyteller. So um, look forward to to seeing your story more and maybe even on the silver screen soon, which is an awesome project. And and, and I want to mention a couple of these charities that you, that you're a part of at least via LinkedIn Correct me if I'm wrong, but but uh, trustee and grenade and uh, you're doing some executive coaching. You mentioned your work uh, there with the the Royal Marines charity. I mean, you just don't stop, and that's a big part. It seems like of your secret for success as well. Absolutely, and getting around good people. You know, those are all good people. They help me. We've got similar values, morals, ethics, and that's a big part of it too. So, tons of practical takeaway from this this little hour long with uh mark ormrod so how can folks connect with you so that's what we <laughs> we want folks connecting with you because so many other people can benefit from from your testimony so how can folks do that uh i'm on all the the regular social media channels instagram linkedin twitter facebook uh, I've just tried TikTok, but that's brutal. There's some real brutal comments on that thing. Um, so I may, I may step away from that one. But also, you know, my web, my website, markhomer.com, there's contact information on there. Wonderful. I'll I tell you, my, uh, Kim, I don't know about you, but my life is better and my week is better. My month is better from having spent this last hour with Mark. How about you? Yeah, mate. Well, they, they say that you become uh, part of the people that are around you. And mate, if I can, if I can take a piece of you with me, mm. wherever I go from here on in, I'll be, I'll be proud and I'll be thankful. Mm. So uh, respect to you, mate. Respect for the service when you gave it and what the service is that you're now giving. So, uh, you know, as I say, total respect. 
Agreed. Thank Agreed. So, uh, but really quick, we want to make sure we connect Kim here. So Kim, CEO of the, the Logistics Executive Group. You also have, so you're doing a bunch of work globally, you and your team. The vodcast where we initially met, it just keeps on rocking and rolling. So how can folks connect with you? Yeah, sure. Just uh, all, all the usual places, logisticsexecutive.com. We're pretty much global these days with our executive consulting and uh, corporate advisory and our executive search. Many people know us for. So LinkedIn, we're, we're, we're doing a lot on LinkedIn. So Kim Winter on LinkedIn or Logistics Executive Group, the hub of your supply chain. Wonderful. And we'll make sure the links for both Mark Ormrod and Kim Winter are in the show notes so we encourage y'all to connect. What an outstanding uplifting we told you we told you it's gonna be a special conversation an inspiring conversation and one of the best parts about it it puts other things in perspective right i already know thanks to mark and what he shared here today some of the little nail biting problems i had coming in via email and this ping and that ping oh those are, that's small potatoes so big thanks to mark ormrod make sure y'all connect with him big thanks to kim winter and of course the great people over at logistics executive group big thanks to you our listener thanks for tuning in and and walking with us through this 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 journey we're on that we meet fascinating people just like mark hey if you're a veteran and you got a story to tell reach out to us you can find us across social media you can find us at supplychainnow.com reach out we want to uh, see if we can't get you into our production schedule but most importantly if you do anything today do good give forward be the change be like mark mark ormrod and on that note we'll see you next time right here at veteran voices thanks everybody 